American exceptionalism will have you thinking that everything when it comes to news, especially about COVID, is about America. And that's one of the downfalls that we're seeing when we're talking about COVID. Um, America is really just thinking about itself. But we have to remember, this is a global pandemic. That means everyone across the world is being affected. And if everyone across the world is being affected, there are some policy changes or some differences that are happening between different countries. And so on today's episode, I'm going to take it international and we're going to have a discussion about what's going on in other parts of the world and what are some policy differences that we're seeing. Also, we're going to talk about some of the things that we are seeing in COVID when it comes to discrimination and what are some things that are ironic that we're seeing and some things that we're like, why is this going on? Today, I have with me Dr. John Joe, who is going to talk about more about the international perspective that's happening all around the world that's different depend on the country that you are living in. I'm super excited for this topic, so let's get to it. for coming to another episode of Coloring Health Policy. Today, I have Dr. John Jones here today to talk about um, policy, but from an international perspective. So hi, John. Thank you for coming on the show today. Hi, Faith. Thank you very much for having me here. So John, um, like I mentioned, you know, you're a pharmacist and I'm just curious, like what is what's going on in the world of pharmacy in relation to COVID? As you know that in medical professions, there are different specialties and different uh, kind of medical profession, healthcare professionals. The same rules applies in pharmacy as well. So in pharmacy, we have retail pharmacists that work in retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens or their independent pharmacies. But also there are clinical pharmacists who work in hospital providing medications. And then uh, pharmacists in industry, they are involved in so many things like medication safety, health policy, consulting, drug marketing. And I think all of them are really important in our responses to COVID-19. Okay. So basically there's a lot going on in the world of pharmacy. So let's break that down. So hydroxychloroquine has really been talked about a lot in the media. Um, also now um, the FDA and Dr. Fauci has um, support behind a new drug that has just been um, believed to help with reducing the time people um, who are positive of COVID will be experiencing the symptoms. I'm just curious, as a pharmacist, what information you know could you share with us about what's going on with these medications? Definitely, hydroxychloroquine was on the peak of media. It was promoted by a newspaper, and everyone got nervous drugs. And I think the the other drug you were mentioning, the FDA just given an authorization on emergency use, was remdesivir. And then we also have other options to investigate if these drugs have roles in treating coronavirus. So remdesivir is a nucleotide analog 
that has shown activity against COVID-19 virus. And also they have been used in treating other related coronavirus diseases such as SARS and MERS. But then the issue for this drug and for every other drug that we're talking about treating COVID is that we don't have enough data or the evidence has been conflicting. The newest file on remdesivir was a multinational randomized placebo-controlled trial, and this trial included 1,063 patients with confirmed COVID-19, all with the evidence of involvement of lung tissues. The results showed that remdesivir resulted in a faster recovery, and then there was also a trend towards a lower mortality in the group that received remdesivir, but then the result was not statistically significant. But then what I mentioned before that evidence are not leading to one conclusion, a double-blend randomized trial of onremdesivir in China of 237 patients actually showed no improvement compared to placebo. We have to keep doing research, keep doing clinical trials to evaluate the true efficacy and then to see if we can establish a solid, robust association between using remdesivir and treating COVID-19. The hydroxychloroquine that we mentioned before, it was a study of 36 patients in France. And then although that the study result showed that the hydroxychloroquine 200 milligrams three times daily was associated with a higher rate of undetectable COVID-19 sample at day six, but then methodology was not the most robust. We just need more data and more better design studies to see the association. And then other drugs available is a drug called lopinavir and ritotavir. It's a combined protease inhibitor that have been used for HIV treatment. Um, the lopinavir and ritonavir was shown activity against MERS in animal studies, and then some in vitro uh, studies also show activity against SARS-CoV. And then I know that WHO has already launched a multinational trial to evaluate remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, and lopinavir. So we'll potentially have more data to make recommendations on how to treat COVID-19. And then I think another important drug to be on the lookout is the interleukin-6 pathway inhibitors. So these drugs include tocilizumab, cerulumab, and the saltoximab. Yeah. You just mentioned a, a whole lot of drugs, and these drugs are not only being used for COVID, but they've been used for other diseases, like you mentioned, HIV. And I was just curious, for people who are using these drugs for diseases like HIV, how are they being infected um, in getting access to these drugs if now they're being used for COVID? That's a really important question to ask. Hydroxychloroquine is a drug used for maintenance therapy for lupus and also rheumatoid arthritis. And then those with these two diseases, they have to be on hydroxychloroquine for a long-term course. I remember that when hydroxychloroquine was on the heat of media a couple weeks ago, I think, there, there was a national shortage on these two drugs. And the thing is that when when we see this drug shortage, that would be we, it means that we have to divert ourselves to seek alternative treatment. But then sometimes there are no alternative treatments for these diseases, mm. and then people who actually need it will be severely affected. I yeah. definitely agree with that, and we tend to forget that these medications are also used by people who have other diseases, and it's important that we always remain mindful of that. I just want to transition a little bit. Um, I've noticed that with the elderly, we know that they are more prone to get COVID and they're more prone to get the complications mm -hmm. of COVID. Um, but how are elderly also being affected by what's going on with COVID? 
Yeah, so um, as we know that COVID-19 uh, has more severe consequences and then complications in patients in the elderly age range. So it's totally understandable that um, elderly patients may not want to come to pharmacy without protective equipment or masks, gloves. So one of my colleagues, he started this company um, called pills to me and launched this app. Uh, this app was co-founded by the public health students at Yale. And then the goal is to deliver medications to people who cannot go to the pharmacies during COVID-19 themselves. Our initiative was supported by the Throne Prize for Social Interventions in Health or Education at Innovate Health Yale. We have uh, news media help us cover it and promote our project as well. So far in the New Haven area, we have more than 40 volunteers, and then all of our deliveries have been completed within two hours of requests, um, which is wow. really phenomenal because if you think about other delivery services, it normally take 48 hours to do that. And then our, our mm. mission or our idea is that if you can request an Uber within five minutes to pick you up, there's no reason that you cannot get your medication delivered within two hours. All yeah. right, no, I believe in that. <laughs> so we have been expanding our services in New Haven and um, get ready to launch our project in other cities as well. Awesome. That's, that just sounds so amazing. And I'm glad, you know, um, you know, you mentioned that this is Leslie's project. So I just want to shout out Leslie on that. That's just an amazing, timely project. And the fact that it's just changing people's lives during this time of COVID. And as you mentioned before, you know, pharmacists are and a wide range of fields. And um, I'm just curious if you wanna go more into details, like how does the clinical pharmacist within the hospital, we already know that the healthcare system is stretched, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of we're seeing, you know, doctors and nurses are on TVs, but nobody's talking about the pharmacist and what they're experiencing with COVID-19 within the hospital. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important topic to talk about. Everyone in the entire care team is important and it has to be integrated for us to work effectively to make sure that we deliver the best care for patients. But then pharmacists are not being in included as much mm -hmm. as we should be. So one of the policy is called helping emergency responders overcome emergency situations called HEROES mm -hmm. Act of 2020. Initially, when the act came out, it did not include pharmacists as uh, beneficiaries. Really? Yes, so pharmacists are not part of essential medical professionals. Our organization, American Pharmacists Association, had to fight for it to have pharmacists included in that act. Without recognizing the pharmacist's roles and the responsibilities there, a lot of healthcare teams don't think pharmacists are important and don't think pharmacists as a resource mm. to maximize the quality of care. So I think it's not just from a policy perspective, it's also from a clinical practice perspective that the roles of pharmacists has to be recognized so that we can form this effective team to deliver care for patients. Okay. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think more people, you know, after hearing you talk about the importance of having a pharmacist on the team and how important pharmacists are to making sure that healthcare is delivered and the healthcare quality is given, I think it changes their perspective. And I just want to transition because not only are you a pharmacist, but you're also an international student. And I know that American media tends to make um, COVID very American centric and um, how our reactions towards it are very American centric. But we have to remember this is a global pandemic and everyone's being affected. So I'm just curious, like, what is your perspective on the global take to COVID-19? That's a really good question. 
because we do know that COVID-19 is a global health crisis and then we cannot isolate ourselves mm -hmm. from, from the entire world. But then we also need to acknowledge that different countries have different approaches in how they manage COVID-19. A lot of my focus has been on China and Sweden, these two countries. And then we see distinct differences among the measures taken by China, Sweden, and the U.S. So we all know that U.S. has been locking down cities mm. like New York City. And then we all know that China put the entire city under lockdown in the beginning of this um, global health crisis. But then Sweden is being a unique outlier here. Sweden has not yet implemented any strict social distancing regulations. As far as I knew from today's news, the restaurants and bars are still open. And then people really? still carry on their life in Stockholm. It's really interesting to see how Sweden is responding completely different than what people think the country should respond. I'm not saying it's wrong or right, it's just different. And then I think it's interesting to see that like even Denmark and Norway, they have taken different approaches from Sweden. Denmark and Norway locked down their country and it's completely different story in Sweden. The way that you broke down China, U.S., and Sweden, I think, you know, it's important to mention how they differ through the government as well. Um, so their approaches to this is definitely done um, differently on a governmental level. But I think it's just so unique that Sweden, who usually does the same thing as Denmark, as, as, as you mentioned, and Norway, has chosen to do its own thing and kind of like almost ignore that um, COVID-19 is there. We learn in like, you know, public health school and like just in general when it comes to health that we look to, you know, the Nordic countries because they tend to be the ones that are kind of like health forward or always thinking um, in a way that we should be doing things. And in this case, Sweden has taken a different turn. I was just wondering if you, like, is there any theory out there as to why Sweden is not, you know, responding a way that we would expect it to respond? Yeah, I definitely agree with your point that Sweden, Denmark, and Norway present everything we are supposed to do in the rest of the world. <laughs> I mean, basically also everything we're not supposed to do. Their rationale initially is that Sweden had two advantages in the beginning of the COVID-19. Uh, one is the public trust to the government so that people actually, they listen to the advice from government, they comply with them, and then they also have a mutual trust among fellow citizens. So that if the government says we recommend mm -hmm. social distancing, we recommend working from home, people will do that. And it's actually true because most people in the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 happening, Sweden, Swedish government encouraged people to work from home. And a lot of companies actually started that without strict government regulation. They voluntarily send their employees mm -hmm. home and then provide their resources so that they can communicate. So I think this public trust actually gained a lot of advantage in the beginning of the pandemic. So besides public trust, the second point is that Swedish culture actually played an important role here as well. So social distancing is not a strange concept to Swedes at all. Even though without COVID-19, you don't wait in line and then stand really close to another person in front of you. In the beginning of this COVID-19 crisis, I've read articles saying that the Nordic country had it done already. We are already practicing social distancing for the past 50 years. Um, I think these two <laughs> things had some advantages in the beginning, but then also we need to realize that it's a, it's a risk to trust 10 million people at the same time. It's, it's risky mm. to trust all of them will do the things that the government recommends them to do. So in this case, the public health agency in Sweden has to recommend some measures, and then the government can take their advice. So mm. without the public health agency's approval, 
Swedish government cannot do anything. And then I think it's, it's a part of the public trust wow. system that the government trusts science. The government believes in experts to direct them mm. on the correct way to do things. Yeah, I, I think that was just beautifully worded. And, um, you know, you, you hit on something that, you know, is such so controversial in the U.S. when it comes to policy. And that's like trusting, trusting the experts. You know, we we have experts that are on TV, like everyone now is an expert, <laughs> depending on who you watch, whether it's Fox News, CNN, NBC, mm. ABC, whatever, you know, acronym you want to throw out there. They always have an expert and like this is the expert for COVID-19. This is the expert to explain to you what you should be doing at this point. Mm. But I think the way that Sweden does it is like, look, we know who the experts are. It's these people specifically and no one else. And that's very different than it is from America because it's like whoever has, you know, a, a PhD or the, the title of doctor in whatever form, um, is considered an expert on something that's a health matter. Um, that's very different. And I just want to take a, you know, a turn, but still stay on the same topic of experts, but looking towards China. Before it was considered a pandemic, you know, the outbreak in the epicenter was China and Wuhan, China. And um, a lot of the time, a lot of people felt that the experts in China at that point were not listened to. And that kind of led to basically the virus becoming the pandemic that we're seeing today. Mm. I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you feel about that? Um, first of all, we we can't, so because of the lack of data and then how we're assessing this situation, we can't definitively say where does the virus come from. Um, the, first, the first outbreak definitely happened in China, yet we don't know where the origin of this virus is. Regarding your point on scientists in the beginning of this outbreak, I think the important thing for us to know is that the data changes every day. The information that we know changed every day. Mm. Think about when, when the COVID-19 first started in China, China didn't have that much information and data to even work around. In the beginning of the disease outbreak, no one knew what was happening. No one even knew what this disease was. People thought it was severe pneumonia. No one checked mm. if it was just a random virus coming. Now we know more information right now. Our assessment and evaluation has to be updated as well. We can't say that, oh, we know COVID-19 has human-to-human -human transmission. We know that COVID-19 targets your lower respiratory tract. We know that COVID-19 causes fibrosis in your lungs. And then we go back to be like, why didn't you tell me this earlier, China? They didn't know it either, right? I think there's also a political game here and because global health politics is also an important component of global health that absolutely we we definitely need to think about countries response the balance between health measures and their political goals and right now president trump said that he would pull out funding for who because who helped china cover the facts i think first of all it's not a useful strategy uh, in terms of mm. global health and global cooperation China reported cases to WHO at the end of December and then issued a statement around the beginning of January saying that this is a serious thing. But then what happened in the beginning of January? U.S. killed the general of Iran, so all the media attention was there. And then, Good point. I, didn't, I, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that happened around, in January. Around the end of January, WHO issued a statement saying that it's a public health emergency. China reported the cases. But then what did other countries do? 
other countries didn't do anything. We were about to go to World War III at that point. Exactly, right? <laughs> they wrongly assumed that the virus would just stay in China by cutting trades and travels mm. to the country. But then it didn't work because this, tr this travel restrictions have never worked before. And now, mm. like we know more data, we are in the epicenter of the states right now in the states. I think it, it might be slightly ineffective to say that WHO helped to cover this, blah, blah. If we had no disinformation earlier, we would have done this and this to prevent that from happening. I personally don't think the countries will take it seriously unless they're hit. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's deep. And I think that's definitely a different perspective than what we're seeing on the media. And I think it's needed because we have to always put everything that we're seeing into context of what's going on or has gone on yeah. beforehand. You know, the fact that you were mentioning, you know, in January, we were focused on trying to make sure we don't go to World War Three with Iran. Um, and I totally forgot about that because we're so bombarded with news every single day. Like you can't keep yeah. up on what was important last week you know, with that. But one thing I've noticed throughout COVID is that we're seeing a lot of um, disparities and not only disparities, but a lot mm -hmm. of discrimination that's occurring. Um, you know, as a Chinese national that's living in the U.S., I'm just curious if you personally have experienced a discrimination around, you know, COVID and the assumption that all Chinese people have COVID and therefore we're going to treat them, you know, in such a negative way. I personally have not experienced any of that, but I did know that um, things like discrimination, like you mentioned, has happened. Some of my friends, they actually told me that when they were in New York, they got called stupid B-word uh, on the Metro. And wow. then um, I also have friends in LA and San Francisco and then got yelled at by wearing masks. As much as you want to say the virus comes from China, it's not going to target Chinese people only. It's a virus that targets everyone, that everyone could be affected. By singling out a special mm. specific group out, it's not a good way to form the collaboration that we actually need to solve this global problem. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I also don't want to just talk about that in the context of the U.S., but we can go actually back to China. And I know there's not huge national reporting on it in terms of the U.S. reporting it, but I've seen it when I look at a lot of my friends who are in the U.K. and I and I follow a lot of U.K. Um, sources, but they're talking mm. about how Africans in um, China are now experiencing discrimination by um, Chinese who are like preventing them from getting access to housing and food and shelter because they now believe that it was Africans who brought the virus to them. But it, it kind of goes back to your point, as you mentioned beforehand, we should not single out one single group. Yeah, we can, we can see that from a government perspective and also from um, citizens' uh, perspective. We know that politically, China and um, countries in Africa have super close tie collaborations. And then China is building mm -hmm. infrastructure for the countries in Africa. And then China is taking students from uh, African countries to come to China to study. And then typically, they are paid by Chinese government as well. Uh, one of the center where we see there's an increasing number of cases is Guangzhou. Uh, which is the area there is a lot of foreign nationals from African countries uh, residing in, in, the, in the city. I think from the government perspective, uh, all, I, no one would like that to happen. 
the responses from uh, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has articulated that collaboration between China and African countries are crucial keys to solve this global issue. But then I think people's perspective are slightly different. There are some videos on Chinese social media. It was filming a Nigerian woman fighting a nurse in the hospital. Yeah, there oh, were a wow. lot of, but, but, but the thing is, we don't know what happened. No one was there to tell us what was mm. what exactly was the situation. And then some uh, comments uh, under the video were racist. <laughs> yeah, wow. I do not approve um, such behaviors at all. Um, but I do think that because China is it's a uniracial country, you see foreigners, but then they're not like they're not mm. well integrated into the society. Um, it's not like in the States, right? In, in your high school, you have students from different racial groups, but then it's not a case in China. So they don't know the importance of integration and cultural assimilation, or even like multiculturalism in a country is actually important for this country's development. So when incidents mm -hmm. like that happens, they will just make this comments that it's not effective in solving the problem at all. And then also, I think the side effects of that is that there is a lot of misinformation online as well. If people are not educated, if people, mm -hmm. people don't know what is going on, it's a really big opportunity for misinformation to be spreaded. They kind of send in misinformation on how um, foreign, foreign nationals from Africa treat Chinese healthcare professionals and then started to elicit this anti-foreigner um, mentality and then cause a lot of issues. Yeah. I do see reports of um, people from Kenya and Nigeria got denied housing or were like, going to restaurants and people asked them to leave the uh, leave the restaurants. I I I think I think it's a really important issue to address because as I mentioned before, it's a global problem. You can't single out a special group of people and just be like, we're not going to take care of you. From a government perspective and even healthcare perspective, I didn't see any foreign nationals got denied care in China. So the Chinese hospital system, like the physicians and nurses will treat everyone. So at least they can get healthcare. But then we also, we also mm. know that like social determinants of health is also really important, right? It's not just that you get healthcare, it's that you need housing, you need food, you need the social support. And then that comes from people in China who manage those mm. sectors of economy and their society. So I think the government has to address this issue, make sure to communicate with countries in Africa about the situation and then tell them what happened and what can be done. But at the same time, also educate their own citizens. In China, we need to embrace mm. this multiculturalism, the multi multiracial group, to actually elicit social changes as well from the base of the population so that this discrimination is not going to happen. Wow. I, I think you just said it all. And I, and I think that was great. I mean, I only have one last question and, and that goes on like how I do all my podcasts. I kind of ask, you know, what is something that we should be on the lookout for? Whether something that you're doing or something that news wise, we should just make sure that we're keeping in the forefront of our minds going forward. So the first thing I'm thinking is the easing lockdown strategies. Uh, a lot of countries are starting to implement strategies to remove the lockdowns or ease the lockdowns um and then i have seen articles saying that there might be a second outbreaks and then we have to be prepared for the second hit so it will be interesting to see how countries tackling this removing lockdown policy and then what steps they will be taking 
So, for example, Denmark is trying to do that. Austria had implemented stepwise lockdown removal. Czech Republic, for example, one of the earliest countries to in, impose lockdowns, are trying to reopen their countries. So it will be it will be interesting to see how countries who implemented different strategies at different time point kind of come to the stage that they have to reopen the country and how they're prepared for the second outbreaks. Uh, another thing to keep looking out for will be, I think, innovations. Uh, we know that mm -hmm. South, South Korea started this drive-through testing sites. Uh, maybe in the, in, in the next weeks, the U.S. could be doing the same thing. Um, also, some innovations in Iceland that they actually allow every single citizen in Iceland to be tested. And then they have developed an app to help with contact tracing. And I think these innovations like technology could be on the on the front on the front line of COVID nineteen management as well in the states. And also, I'm writing about global health politics again. I I am <laughs> writing on um, collaborations between China and North Korea, and then mm. how in cases like global health emergencies, we might have to put sanctions away and then help to achieve the humanitarian goal before we achieve our political goals. So it mm. could be interesting. I'm still working on that. That That's just going to sound interesting. You just dropped a whole bunch of knowledge and I appreciate you. You're like my international health guru and <laughs> I appreciate it. And it's definitely something that we have to think about because a lot of the times as Americans, we are very American focused and be able to have someone who can kind of break down what's happening internationally makes us remember that we're not just a citizen of America, but we're a citizen yeah. of, of the world. So John, thank you so much for coming on Coloring Health Policy today. I think you just dropped a bunch of knowledge. Definitely, I'm pretty sure the listeners are just soaking this up. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much, Faith, for having me. So the major takeaway that I got when I was talking with John about what's going on in Sweden and China and the different um, types of discrimination is that we always have to put things into context. And we tend to, when we're looking at the media, not consider the context of things. I mean, who, who could have thought, you know, that, you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, God rest his soul, would pass away, that we'd be considering to go to war with Iran. And that we have this glooming pandemic that's taking place behind the scenes. And we always have to make sure that we're looking at the whole picture when it comes to things like that. I'm so excited that we were able to have a conversation about the international um, effects that are happening with COVID. And it just gives me a clear understanding that, you know, what coloring health policy it's not only important that we focus on the American issues, but we also remember that America is one country on a giant globe. So I'm glad that we we're able to get that perspective. So again, as I always say, if you love coloring health policy, and if you love hearing my conversations with the different guests who are going to come on the show, and I'm going to have episodes that go more into depth on certain things that are health policy wise, don't forget to one, tell a friend, and then two, subscribe yourself. I mean, I'm going to put out new episodes. You want to be the first to listen to it. You know, you want to be like, oh, did you hear that? You know, be that first and be willing to share. So again, thank you so much. This is Coloring Health Policy.